Today's text is from Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. But when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and went and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country, depending on the king's because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me make this with a quick word of prayer again. Jesus, you are the word who brought light into darkness and life into death and who is still resurrecting and bringing new life. So we ask that your word will do that among us this morning. Help us to hear what it is that your spirit wants to speak to us. We pray this in your holy and majestic and beautiful name. Amen.
A few years ago, I read a novel called Silence. It's by the Japanese novelist Shusaku Endo. It's considered kind of a classic of the 20th century. There's actually been a movie made of it. Have not seen the movie. Cannot say whether it's any good or not. But the book is considered a classic. And a few years ago, I felt like everyone was talking about it, and so I read it. And it's, uh, it's uh, uh, what's the word? It's, 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 the story happens in 17th century Japan and kind of highlights a lot of the ongoing persecution that specifically Catholic Christians experienced in Japan. And it centers around this uh, Catholic missionary who goes to Japan. It is one of the most difficult depictions of spiritual darkness I've ever read. Again, everyone I felt like was reading and saying, oh, it's so profound. But it feels like you're reading a Christian version of 1984, if you know the George Orwell with Big Brother. And it's like, no matter what the Christians did, like they were going to lose. And the whole theme of the book is the silence of God in the face of grave opposition and persecution. And honestly, I found it pretty difficult and troubling to read. But it brings up an important question, which is what do we do when the darkness seems to be really strong? Or even more, when it seems like the darkness is one. Um, as we come to our text this morning, that seems to be the case when it begins. Uh, this story does not open well for the church. And, and we can read over that very quickly, but the church is in a dark place. Where is God in the midst of that? And when we find ourselves likewise in places of darkness, again, whether that's because we're being opposed because of our faith, or just the regular sufferings that come with walking and living in a fallen world, what do we do? What does this story have to tell us? And what this story tells us is that even when the darkness seems to have won, Jesus still reigns. And one day his enemies will fall. And darkness will, be, will pass away for good. So that's our outline for us. First point is when the darkness seems to have won. Second point, Jesus still reigns. And third point, his enemies will fall. So our first point, when the darkness seems to have won. Let me read verses 1 to 5 for us again. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Our story begins, we're introduced to this person, Herod. This is not the Herod who tried to kill baby Jesus. This is actually the grandson of Herod the Great. He's called Herod Agrippa. And what we know about Herod is that he was very popular with the religious leaders in Jerusalem, uh, very popular with the Pharisees. And all of a sudden, he begins to target the Christian church. Doesn't tell us why. Maybe he thought he was throwing a boon to the Jewish leaders. And if he, if he thought that, well, that was, that was true. And so he goes after James. He kills James. When he sees that's popular, well, then he goes after Peter. But again, the, when we pick up here, the church in Jerusalem is in a dark period. And it's interesting. Um, the Bible has given us a lot of stories. Uh, the Bible could have just written a, a list of facts, such as God is sovereign even when life is hard. But God gave us stories because there's something about stories that invites us into it, that helps us see truths that then help us take those truths and apply them to our own lives. 
And so I want to slow down and, and try to enter a little bit into the story of what's going on, to try to walk in the footsteps of this early church as we begin these first five verses, which again, they're entering into a time of, 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 of a pretty dark period for the church. First evidence of this darkness is that James is martyred. Now, he's the first apostle to have been martyred for the faith. He won't be the last, but he's the first. And you've got to think what effect that would have had on the church. He was one of the 12 that walked with Jesus from the beginning. And so if you're a new Christian and you're, you have questions, it's like, well, maybe I have doubts in my faith, but here are our followers who walked with Jesus the whole time. And they're telling us he really was the Messiah and he really rose from the grave. And now James is gone. But James wasn't just one of the apostles, one of the original 12 disciples. He was one of the inner three. And it seems Jesus, he took 12 disciples during his earthly life. He had hundreds of disciples. But he took 12, who he invested a lot of time into, probably because they were going to be future leaders in the church. But then within that 12, there was an inner circle of three who he really invested time in. And that was Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John were the only three of the disciples who saw Jesus' transfiguration. And so again, James, and this is actually really interesting. After, so Acts 1 it lists the 11 surviving disciples, right? Judas kills himself, so there's only 11 after that point, the only three disciples slash apostles who are named in Acts is Peter, James, and John. So you, you get a sense for how central of a leader James was. And whenever a leader leaves a community, even if it's under the best terms, not because he was martyred, it can feel unmooring for the community. Well, here James, he's been, he's been killed. But Herod doesn't just stop at James, now he's going after Peter. And if James was a central leader of the church, Peter was even more. Uh, again, it, we have to kind of guess about what the leadership structure of the early church looked like, but just based on how often Peter is referenced and how oftentimes he stands as a representative for the church, he was clearly a first among equals. And now he's been put in jail, uh, waiting to stand trial with the assumption that he also will be martyred like James. And, not, and so James is gone. Peter is next. And Herod, here, here's the thing. Herod Agrippa is still ruling. Like if you're a Christian, you're seeing this happen and it's like Herod's just getting warmed up. Like he's, he's just starting. This is, this is not bode well for the future of the church. Evil has been and is being committed against Christians and there does not seem to be an end in sight. This is the state that the church begins in in our story this morning. But this brings us to our first point, which is very important, which is this. The darkness only seems to have won. I worded my first point intentionally. When the darkness seems to have won. From, every, from most vantage points in our story, like it's not going to go well for the Christians. They don't have any political power. Herod Agrippa is going after them. He's already killed one of their leaders without impunity, or with impunity, I can't know how that works, without consequence. He's going after Peter. It seems like the darkness has won at this point, but it only seems like that. And the reason why the darkness cannot win is because Jesus has risen from the grave. Think of it. You know, these early Christians... They worship a Lord who was tortured and crucified. Uh, some of them may have been at Jesus' crucifixion. That's what's astounding here. 
Um, Because Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, and this is only a few years later. They saw this happening. If there was a day when it seemed darkness had won, it would have been when Jesus Christ died. When the Messiah, who was the Son of God, who came bearing good news of the kingdom, breathed out his last. It would have seemed like the darkness won on that day too. But yet Jesus Christ came back to life. Uh, These early Christians, they are a resurrection people. They believe in the fact of the resurrection and and, and what that means. Again, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, guys, we're all wasting our time. There's much better ways we could spend our Sunday mornings, spend our lives. But he did. He did. And you know what? That means it's all true. That means that everything that Jesus said is true. That means that truly the kingdom of God has broken in to our broken and disordered world in the person of Jesus. That everything Jesus promised is true. And therefore, it doesn't matter how dark the darkness may seem, it only seems to have won. Because Jesus Christ took on the greatest threat any of us face, which is death itself. And death could not hold Jesus. Sometimes the darkness seems to have won. Brothers and sisters, we are a resurrection people. And the center of our faith is the complete reversal of expectations on a day when it seemed darkness really had won. When the Lord of life was killed. But it turned out that that very moment of seeming defeat was how we would come to have life. So again, the darkness can only seem to have won. Because Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. Now, I think in every age, we face the same trials and temptations. Again, as Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. As Christians, we face the same hardships and burdens that Christians have faced for 2,000 years. It's true. At the same time, I do think that we probably have some lean years ahead of us. Uh, as, As fewer and fewer people in America profess any allegiance to Christ, um, it'll just change what it's like to be a Christian in America. Probably face more cultural headwinds. We'll find ourselves more and more in a place where we just, we, we operate from different epistemic foundations. We will not be able to agree on basic questions about what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful with our neighbors. And there's gonna be, there's gonna be challenges that come with that. And so what do we do in the coming years, if it, I mean, again, no one knows what the future brings. Maybe it'll be fine. But what do we do if we do come to a point where we find ourselves in the same place as the early Christians and it seems like the darkness has won? Well, first, again, we remind ourselves that Christ has risen from the grave. The darkness has not won. But what can we actually do beyond just remind ourselves? And this, again, is where the early church is our example. Because the early church, in the face of this darkness, they pray. Again, look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but, and that's, a, that, that's, that's kind of showing a reversal that all is not lost, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. What do we do when we face darkness? Well, we pray. I think a lot of times as Christians, we view pra- uh, prayer sorry, as the consolation prize. It's like, I wish I could do something for you, but I can't. So I'll pray for you. 
And I think when we speak like that, it's simply our human ignorance and weakness that is showing itself. John Stott writes on this passage, he says, the church turned to prayer, which is the only power that the powerless possess. And what I would add to that is that sometimes it takes actual powerlessness for us to see how powerless we are. Sometimes it takes us coming to the point where we can't do anything else for us to begin to realize that, oh, our greatest power is in fact found in our life of prayer, both our hidden life that we each individually have, but also the life of prayer we have together. Again, what, where else is the power of the church? It's not the size of our buildings. I mean, how, you know, how many buildings in Louisville are now bars and were churches 50 years ago? It's not the size of our congregations. It's not our cultural influence, quote unquote. Those all can be lost in a generation. That's what we've seen. Our, pow- our power is found in our life of prayer, both individually and together. You know, reading and study, things that I find very important. They build knowledge. That's good. Prayer builds faith, hope, and love. Um, humans can build buildings and programs, but prayer is what changes lives. I think when we come to the end of our life, we stand before Jesus and we are able to see from the vantage point that he sees, I think we'll realize that so much of the things in our Christian life that we thought were so important were actually somewhat inconsequential. And some of the things that maybe we viewed as consolation prizes, like prayer, were actually the ways that Christ worked most powerfully. So when the darkness seems to have won, again, it hasn't. Why? Because Jesus Christ rose from the grave Darkness can never win the day. It's already been won by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we pray. But why do we pray? This brings us to our second point. Because Jesus still reigns. Again, when the darkness seems to have won, Jesus still reigns. This brings us to verse 6 to 11. Let me read it for us. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know what, that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city, and it opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. There's a bit of a contest in our, in our story between Herod, his power, and really Jesus and his church. And again, the way the story begins, it looks like Herod is winning the day. Uh, and, and, and this is demonstrated through all the things that Herod does to bind Peter. Uh, he has, it says there's four squads of soldiers that are watching him. There have been four soldiers in a squad. So he has 16 Roman soldiers. Uh, the Roman soldiers, were the, they were the most effective, disciplined uh, powerful fighting force of the day, and there's 16 soldiers, heavily armed, 
watching Peter all night. It says he's tied to two soldiers. It's actually not uncommon to have an important prisoner chained to one soldier. If you think about it, if the prisoner is able to kill that soldier, will he still have to drag a body after them? Like, it really does make it difficult to escape. Well, Herod is not satisfied with one. He, 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 he chains Peter to, to two soldiers. Uh, and then, of course, he, 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 chains, he puts two chains on Peter's hands and feet. This does not look good for Peter. What's the problem? Herod is opposing God. There, I, it took me a while to see this, but there's humor in this story and what Herod is doing. What good is the second chain? I mean, if, he, if he's just trying to bind up Peter as a human and, and we're just thinking on a, on a horizontal plane, well, yeah, that'll probably work. But Herod is opposing Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. What good is a second chain when you're opposing Jesus? What good was the first chain? It's, like not, it's not like God's looking down and it's like, oh, the second chain. Sorry, Peter. I would have got you out of there, but I just, that second chain was too much. It's kind of funny, these precautions that Herod's taking because of who he's opposing. But I think we do that a little bit as well with the kind of metaphorical second chains in our lives we think, well, all seems to be lost. I have no hope. Uh, you know, we, again, we, maybe we look at the cultural trends that don't bode well for Christians, and we think, man, I guess that's it. The game's up. Or we, uh, and we look at what's healthy in churches in, in America, and we may never say this, but we subtly think, like, who could clean this up? Or we just look at our own lives and, and, and the ways that we've messed up again and again and again, and we think, how could Jesus use me? Here's the point. What's another chain when the deliverer is Jesus? What's another guard when the one who is going to save the day is God himself? That's the point. Yeah, things didn't look good for Peter. But Jesus is the one who delivers. And Peter understands this. That's why he sleeps. This is astounding. Did you see this? Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Y'all, I, I slept like six hours last night because Caleb came in and woke us up. And it, like, if, if I have a busy day the next day, I don't sleep well. And here's Peter on the eve before he's going to likely be killed in a very gruesome way. Chained to two men? I mean, that in itself would keep me awake. And he's sleeping. He's sleeping because he knew, despite how it looked, despite the darkness, he knew that Jesus still reigned. He didn't know that in some kind of theoretical, intellectual way. He knew that in his bones. He knew that as a lived experience. The Apostle Paul would also know this, this truth that Jesus reigns no matter what the circumstances may look like. And so when Paul was put in a jail in Philippi, he sang hymns all night while the other prisoners looked on, thinking, who is this man? He would sing while jailed. Despite everything, Jesus still reigns. It's a great truth we can sink our teeth into. But here's the thing. It's not just that Jesus is like reigning in his power. That's certainly part of what's being communicated to us by Jesus. Like despite Herod being chaining Peter up and, 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 and trying to prevent him, like it's, it, it's you know, like Peter like passes through the chains like they're water. 
It's not just Jesus' power. It's also that Jesus' reign is surprisingly good. Let me get at this, because there's a note of surprise that runs throughout the whole story, and it's very interesting. Uh, No one expects Peter to be delivered in this story. And that's very interesting because, guys, Peter's already been delivered from prison miraculously. Like, it's not an unknown occurrence. But yet no one expects Jesus to deliver Peter in a miraculous way. And that's why we get this funny story where he's delivered and he goes to the place where the Christians are praying for him and he's knocking on the door and they're like, oh, no, no, it's not Peter. And they're like, it's probably more likely that it's Peter's angel, which I have no idea what that means. And finally he keeps knocking and they're like, no, it's really me. Which means whatever the Christians were praying, they clearly weren't praying that Jesus would deliver Peter. Maybe they're praying that Jesus would commute his sentence or that Jesus would give them courage but they couldn't fathom the goodness of Jesus that he might actually restore their brother to them. Likewise, Peter doesn't expect to be delivered. Again, this is, we see this in verse, in verse 9. As Peter's being delivered by this angel, he goes out and he falls, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. Peter doesn't believe it. He's like, this can't be happening. This is a dream. And it's not until he literally gets outside the prison walls and he's walking down the streets of the city that he realizes, oh no, this just happened. Jesus just delivered me. And as I read about this, I just kept asking myself, what was Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, trying to tell us by bringing out this note of surprise? And this is what I think it is. I think it's that we are often and will often be surprised at the goodness of the reign of Jesus Christ. His reign is probably better than we expect. We want to be very careful about how we think of God, that we don't view him as some kind of divine vending machine, that we put in the right time and effort and money and we get it wherever we want. And sometimes we know that Jesus Christ is sovereign, he brings suffering into our life, and because he's good, we know it's for our our good, but... Paul in Romans says that the creation groans for the coming of Jesus. It wants his presence so badly, it groans in expectation. In the Old Testament, when it talked about the coming of Jesus, it described it as as the hills flowing with sweet wine and as fountains flowing forth from Jerusalem to water the desert wastelands of the world. Like the coming of the kingdom of God was good news, probably better good news than we can imagine. And so, yes, there's no promise that we will not have suffering in our lives. But I think some of us were more prepared for the cross aspect of discipleship. And we might be surprised by how good Jesus really is. Sometimes Jesus brings trials into our lives. It's true. But is it also possible that he also delivers us from trials? Is it possible that Jesus also delivers us from sadness into places of joy. Delivers us from places of discouragement and frustration into places of hope. Again, I think the note of surprise is showing us that even the apostles, even Peter, didn't expect Jesus to be so good that he would deliver him a second time. The reign of Christ is oftentimes better than we can possibly imagine. 
And so when the darkness seems to have won, again, Jesus still reigns. And brothers and sisters, his reign is so good. It's so good. And so the question is, will you follow him? Again, there's a very thought-provoking verse in the story where the angel of the Lord comes to Peter in verse 8 and he says, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Now this is not Jesus, but it's an angel of Jesus. It's a messenger from Jesus. And we know that Jesus, the way that he invited people to be his disciples, he said, follow me. This is clearly echoing those words to Peter in a moment of great darkness, of great despair, thinking he's going to die. And Jesus is saying once again, follow me. Peter, I'm not done with you. I still have work for you to do. I'm better than you expected. You didn't think I would deliver you. I would give you this blessing of restoring you to life, but I will. Follow me. And Jesus comes to each of us, not just once, but again and again. Will you follow him? Remember, when, when the angel of the Lord comes to Peter, he's chained between two soldiers. We should never for one moment think that following Jesus will be a life of ease or comfort. There's nothing in the Bible that suggests that. But it is an invitation into a life with surprising and unforeseen goodness. A life of deep and sometimes unexplainable joy. The invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to lose everything we think we want only to receive in return everything that we actually wanted all along. It's an invitation to a lifetime of fellowship with Jesus, who is the Lion of Judah, the Son of God, the light of the world. When the darkness seems strong, Jesus still reigns, and his reign is so good. And this brings us to our last point. And one day his enemies will fall. Verses 20 to 25 now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to, to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And the word of God increased and multiplied. Again, there's a, there's a showdown happening in this story between Christ and his church and Herod and his powers. And this brings it to the, a conclusion. Christ has shown that he can rescue his followers from the clutches of his enemies. But this brings to a resolution, this, this showdown. And it doesn't end well for Herod. But what I want to get at, though, is how this instance is not just one instance of the enemies of Christ falling, but is pointing to a deeper principle, which is this. One day, evil will pass. One day, everything that is wrong and blighted and corrupt, it will end. Every day, everything that is hard will come untrue. Everything that is sad will come untrue. That's what this is getting at. Again, it's, you know, the, the contrast, it begins in darkness. It begins with James beheaded, Peter in jail, 
Herod on the throne. It ends with Herod dead, Peter freed, and the church is growing and flourishing. But it's pointing to the day when that will be done in totality. Sin will be no more. Death will be no more. Pain will be no more. I think that's why Peter slept between the two guards. Again, we we know Peter wasn't expecting to be delivered. That's not where his hope was. But I think Peter understood that no matter how dark it may seem, one day the night will end. It will. And that gave him hope for that moment. There's a scene in The Lord of the Rings that I think communicates this very well. The books, not the movies. Sorry if you haven't read the books. You need to read them. If you're not familiar with the story of Lord of the Rings, Frodo and Sam, uh, they're on a quest to destroy this ring of power. They have to take it into the land of Mordor, which is land of darkness, land of the enemy, and they have to throw the ring into Mount Doom. And there's a scene when they've reached, when they've reached the land of Mordor, and it's the land of darkness. The sun never shines. The stars never shine. Um, and they realize the immensity of their quest, and they realize they're probably, they realize the chances of success are so small. And they're in this crisis of despair, crisis of doubt, and Sam looks up, and there's a star that's shining through, through the clouds. And this is what it says. It says, the beauty of that star smote his heart. And as he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him, for like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty for every, forever behind its reach. I think that's how Peter was able to sleep. He understood in a deep way that the shadow itself, no matter how strong it looks, no matter how dark it gets, it's only a small and passing thing. And it will pass and we'll spend all eternity in the beauty that's hidden behind it. Jesus reigns now, and one day his enemies will fall, the shadow will pass, and the beauty which the darkness hides will be seen for all eternity. Again, Peter sleeps between two guards. There's a balance we have to have here. The promise of following Jesus is never a promise of safety or comfort, but it is a promise of hope, The evil is temporary, it will pass, it will one day come untrue. And so brothers and sisters, if the darkness seems strong for you in your life now, or if you find yourselves in a place where the darkness seems strong, remember the Jesus who called you to himself, who looked into your life and said, come and follow me. Remember his promises. Because Jesus has risen from the grave, everything he said is true, and we can trust it. Remember that he reigns and that his reign is surprisingly good. And walk in faith. And look for those unexpected moments of goodness and joy and hope. For the moments that strike our hearts that Jesus brings to us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for these stories you give us that show us deep truths, that you reign no matter what, that your reign is surprisingly good, that you bring blessings beyond what we can imagine, and that one day the shadow will pass, one day we'll be with you for all eternity. We thank you. May you give us 
faith, hope, and love to walk with you all the days that you've given us on this earth. We pray this in your holy and majestic name. Amen.